I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And I'm Bill Fox. And we love to watch. We love to watch has one Christmas wish. Hold my hand, guys. Make one Christmas wish for mixed nuts to be over. I'm telling y'all that Santa's lost. for a while i'm I felt like 30 minutes in you can you can <laughs> i felt 30 minutes in you can cut this off like it's this isn't going anywhere i don't care about anyone at the premise is bad like uh yeah this uh this is this is uh something else um so <laughs> i was like <laughs> sorry that was a moment where it's like should we just get this over with should i keep riffing uh, I, I don't know. Yeah, let's keep going. Um, okay. We'll, we'll, we'll get to it. Um, but yeah, so Aaron, what, we, what, is, what is this thing? What do we love to watch? We're a movie podcast. We pick a theme. We do movies over the course of that theme uh, over a month's time, for example. And if we remember, we compare and contrast. And we're in our second week of Cursed Christmas uh, because Peter and I love doing uh, holiday and Christmas themed months in December. It's our fifth one of these. And while we've uh, done a bunch of the other Christmas subgenres from obvious ones like classics to more Peter and Aaron ones like Hork ones to more uh, uh, our guest Bill Fox ones like uh, uh, Hallmark Christmas movies, we realized there was a huge mini genre that we had not touched. And that was uh, the shit Christmas movie that uh, no one watches and that they're just essentially these cursed artifacts of films that, as we talked a little bit about last week and we'll definitely talk about more next week, that there is a like contingent of the of movie audiences that connect to these movies based on age, based on just they watched it at a time they needed something Christmassy and they got it. And so you have all these, like, movies that everyone goes, that movie sucks. And then you'll meet someone whose favorite Christmas movie is fucking Fred Claus. And you're like, where? what island did Fred, you grow Fred, up on? Fred, Fred, Fred Claus. <laughs> it has a great Ludo Christmas song on it. Uh, so it, so <laughs> we thought that was – Fred Claus. Uh, so, yeah, we thought that was a big, big part of Christmas movies that we had not tapped into. And we had a fucking ton to choose from. I cannot emphasize that enough. We really pared it down. We put some for we saved the I'll be home for Christmases and the deck the halls for potentially later dates. Um, but one of the ones that we decided to do mainly because our guest today is such a huge fan of it uh, is a movie that Peter and I had never seen. Uh, and that is Nora Ephron's follow up to the hugely successful Sleepless in Seattle with a, a, a stellar 1990s cast of characters uh, called Mix Nuts. Which may be one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my life. Uh, what the fuck? I don't. You guys are just hate watchers now. This whole podcast. Well, I thought they, I, mean, I thought you look, were against it. 
Well, I, I didn't ha- I didn't say I'm going to hate this. It had a lot of people I like in it, but I just it's a movie that there's a there's a movie um by James L. Brooks called I'll Do Anything too, which is like one of his movies from the 90s that feels like maybe he had no ideas or too many ideas and you watch that movie and you're like, what the fuck is this? Um, I think this is a better movie, but I think Singles is a really good example of that too, where it's like Cameron Crowe wanting to do a movie about grunge and it doesn't just doesn't do enough um, to like make anything unique or have a story or characters that you truly care about. Singles is a way better movie than Mixed Nuts or uh, or I'll Do Anything. But it kind of has that same 90s energy where you put, uh, you know, a a director coming off a hit, uh, uh, A-list cast, but something is missing from a story or a theme or an idea standpoint. And you end up with just kind of this like, ugh of a movie like what why didn't someone at any point decide to do a little more with this and i gotta say i think that's what makes nuts is to me except it is i will get to it but it's it's starting with an idea that already needs to be handled either delicately and by delicately i can mean like straight drama we're going to talk about uh this from a sensitive perspective or go true like over-the-top, offensive, black comedy, and the movie has no idea what it wants to do, and it ends up as just this, yeah, this weird bleh of a movie. But Bill, uh, I'm still glad we watched it, because we got to have you come on and (laughs) talk about why you like this movie so much. But Bill, so yeah, introduce yourself to our audience, and also tell us uh, why you wanted to talk about the film Mixed Nuts. I was going to say, since it's so hard to get me to come on, it's like, hey, Bill, you want to record? Okay. Right? Like, <laughs> anyways. I'm not, getting, I'm not coming on for just peanuts. There's a good song, too, about Mixed Nuts. Anyways, um, I am Peter's brother-in-law. I am the only extended family member that listens to the podcast, so I get invited back the most frequently. Um, I'm here Name to some other extended family members that aren't listening to the podcast. If these uh, the, the movies that we're doing this month sort of fit into different, almost sub-sub-genres of uh, Christmas movies, um, is that they're all kind of extrapolations of a different way to approach let's make a bunch of money at Christmas time. This movie opened up on December 21st. Um, so this was like, this was not like a funny movie that happens to take place at Christmas time. Uh, this is an unfunny movie that ha- that takes place at Christmas time. It is very specifically about Christmas. Um, this is a dark comedy. This was Nora Ephron's this is Nora Ephron's big swing at writing and directing uh, a dark comedy. And she's not really known for going dark. No, this is after When Harry Met Sally and Sleepless in Seattle. So you're kind of like, obviously, uh, she wrote When Harry Met Sally. She didn't direct it. But it's like, and then she follows it with stuff like You've Got Mail. All of these are like the antithesis of the dark, soulless, I don't care about my characters comedy. Yeah. I've watched like all four of the, of the first four you named in the past. Oh yeah, we love you've got mail, and we liked Sleepless in Seattle. But I, I we've never since we're all such big Nora Ephron's fan. What's your favorite scene from Michael? You smell like cookies is like all I can yeah, remember. I, I just remember John Travolta stealing someone's girlfriend at some point in that movie, and I was like, that is not very angel like. And for what it's worth, um, I do think Bewitched is secretly a very good movie that gets shit on for some reason. 
I haven't, uh, yeah, I haven't seen that one, so I can't vouch for it. I'm going to put that as like, uh, in with Land of the Lost, which is 2005 TV remake starring Will Ferrell that got terrible reviews that are actually secretly pretty good. And Will Ferrell uh, needed to uh, behead his agent in a public square. Go, uh, Land of the Lost is a good movie. Bewitched is a good movie. Those are my hills. I should put it on my Spooktober if it's about a witch. So, actually, like, so the, the premise is kind of clever. It's Bewitched. Uh, they're remaking the the television show Bewitched as a series or as a movie in the movie, and you find out that Samantha uh, was an actual witch on the show, which is how they were able to do all the special effects. And her That's daughter right. they cast to be in the movie version, opposite movie star, not Will Ferrell, but Will Ferrell playing someone else. It's it's like <laughs> kind of, like for a TV remake or a movie remake of a TV show, it's somewhat clever and has some very funny people in it. We're we're generally Nora Ephron fans, and it's interesting that this is one that two out of three of us did not enjoy. Uh, Bill, don't worry, you will get plenty of space to to talk up what you like about this movie. Um, but we'll all be edited out. But you'll have <laughs> and we will will definitely find way to just feed that those sections to your RSS feed, so you can pat yourself on the head and tell you you're good, tell yourself you're a good boy. Um, I'm just going to talk over you guys the entire time <laughs> and just cut my track. <laughs> but the point here is that Nora Ephron is ex- extraordinarily skilled at making um, fun light comedies, and you got mail is like kind of a christmas movie at least at least uh members of my family have adopted it as a christmas movie yeah it's christmas parts yeah this movie to me feels extraordinarily miscalculated on almost every level <laughs> right in between a bunch of Nora Ephron movies that i have great 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 affection for and even like sleepless in seattle which didn't hit me as hard as i wanted it to i can admit like the writing in that is is just the moment to moment comedy and the way that performances are calibrated is like masterclass, right? Like uh, the way that the way that the movie balances tone and the way that the movie handles tragedy is like balances empathetic with a little bit of yeah. wry and sarcastic. This is her trying to be full on almost nihilistic. There's a joke that's entire punchline is a man shooting himself in the head. Uh, a successful suicide is literally a punchline joke in this. Like, it's a very, very different space than she would work in. Uh, for which, um, for which again, life. like that part, which we'll get, we can get into in the movie, is what I think is a legitimately funny moment in the movie. But the movie doesn't, I think, commit to that because it still tries to be a Nora Ephron heartwarming comedy about characters finding their match, which is like kind of her. You know, her bread and butter, especially at this point in her career. And so, like, that combined with, yeah, a comedy that, yeah, uh, a comedy about a suicide, uh, people that run a suicide prevention hotline and all the wacky antics they get themselves into, uh, that is not a good combination. Uh, and it feels like, it does feel like they toned it down. Like, I, I, I think there's a, I think part of the reason why the movie feels so bland and without identity is because, like, I could see this being a script that was initially darker, and then you're like, well, but I want, I want the audience to like Steve Martin, and I want people to be happy to root for him and Rita Wilson at the end, and I want Juliette Lewis and Anthony, like, like, I think and so like it leaned back into her bread and butter of like what if I give these you know 
let all these people find happiness at the end. And it just doesn't work with most of the things that have come before it. Not even in a- She's probably entirely to blame for it. I mean, it probably was like a totally different script. And either it was releasing it at Christmas time or it was her influence. I, I, I think it probably did not end up where it was originally contemplated. It's based on a French movie, right? Fairly popular French stage play. Um, fairly popular. It's, it was still being produced uh, up until recently. And, uh, you know, fairly popular, uh, a less popular, but still fairly popular French film um, called um, Le Pied, Le Pied, Le Pere Noël Est Un Adul. So I'm going to have a broad generalization about something that I've heard people say, because they did remake a lot of these French comedies, right? Like Dinner for Schmucks is a big French comedy that they remade. And all of them were Bird pretty... Ca- except for Birdcage. Birdcage is the big, big example. Uh, big, the big... Uh, b- the big... Exception. Uh, exception. But, like, they were they were international hits in France. They did get adopted. And I do remember, I think it was about the time that... Those OSS. Do you remember the OSS movies where the guy from The Artist is in? Did you ever watch any of those? OSS I watched. 17? I watched one of them and I found it pretty charming. But yeah, yeah. And I. But these were like laugh out loud comedies over there. And I remember. I remember seeing them and being both of them and uh, feeling underwhelmed. And I forget what critic that like. I, I want to say maybe it was David Sims, but I don't want to put this on him if, if it wasn't him. But like that was like wrote something about how like. The the reason why there's so many of these bad remakes of French comedies that are, like, truly bad is because, like, uh, that French people legitimately find different things funny than Americans. And their, their comedy is a little bit more broader. It's a little more slapstick. Uh, and it doesn't quite have the same acidity or... Um, specificity that American comedy of the time of the 90s and stuff has and so as a result the kind of English translations of them seem kind of like oh that was not that had two funny jokes and wasn't very good it's 100% true by the way I mean take Mr. Bean and I think Mr. Bean is not not French but yes Uh, no I'm just saying from a like lack of specificity standpoint a lot of people hate Mr. Bean in the United States. Not that it's the most French, but I'd say it's true of a lot of foreign films in general on comedy fronts. And that last lack of specificity leaves us with like a true slapstick and then it sucks. Yeah, and there's a reason <laughs> why by American comedy Santa Claus is a stinker. I mean, there's a reason why comedies American comedies don't don't do well overseas either. Like Comedy is extremely subjective. It's tonal. It's it's um, based on the time. It's cultural. It's like a lot of different things. And so comedies, for the most part, don't translate well. The ones that do are usually broad and slapstick, which tend to make people like like fuck fucking like the things that are like the most popular, like Dadaist and Tim and Eric anti humor stuff right now in like America, like does not translate in any capacity overseas. It's just too American specific. Like I don't know. 
Yeah, um, yeah. And that, there's I, not a shared culture. It's, it's the reason why, like, Peter and I talk about this all the time. Like, how hard it is to find a comedy from the 60s or 70s or 50s or 40s here that makes us laugh out loud. There are those. But even comedies I love from that era, like a duck soup, like, I feel like I'm appreciating it more than, like, actually laughing. Like, I'm enjoying it. I'm appreciating it. But I'm not like, this is the funniest fucking thing I've ever seen. Like, And those ones like the Doctor Strange love that truly does seem hilarious to this day are the exceptions that prove. Parts of the movie that like directly overlap and feel like little legacy like remnants of the French like stage version. Like when Felix is in the vet's office and he takes the tranquilizer. They don't commit to it, but like he barks for like a decent portion of the remainder of the film. And like you don't even realize he's doing it unless you've seen it a hundred times like I am. Like, why is he barking? And it's like in the French version, like a huge comedic point that like when the vet treats him, he starts acting like a dog. And like that's not even funny <laughs> for us. And so they like just don't really commit it, but kind of left some of it in. Like it doesn't make and any sense. And there's there's something to be said also, like in a stage version of a play, like you can trap characters a little bit easier, but in something that like this, like an ensemble comedy is already incredibly hard. Making a black comedy that doesn't just feel like um nihilist and doesn't completely alienate us from the movie is very hard. There's a reason why people look at Coen Brothers movies and actually marvel at them, but also like Big Lebowski did was not well accepted at, at, at when it was first released, right? Um there are audiences can be not that receptive to black comedies because sometimes they can come off just sort of like pointless and 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 wry and and stupid. Um and this has you're so right bill that's exactly where i was headed was um this has a legacy from the silliness of the original french film when i'm on i I feel like comedy is almost like uh sexual in a way if i'm like really into the moment and really it, it either registers or it doesn't like i feel like horror movies and comedies are often compared but i feel like porno and comedy should be more easily compared because like it either and in this movie when they get to the third act and yet a, th- a thousandth person has been smacked in the head and knocked unconscious. <laughs> Literally, I think every character in this movie gets knocked unconscious. Uh, I just go, oh, fuck, does this mean we have to watch more movie because they have to figure out how to get the person awake? Like, does this mean, does it mean that the, the movie has to keep going? Because I'm not riding that sort of, that sort of buzz that, you know, you do, you do with a good comedy where you're connected to the characters, you're connected to, uh, a, a, you're still riding the high from a really great joke a few minutes ago. Um, you're just like, oh, you're trying to. You need the extends. Yes, yes. You need the extends. <laughs> to keep your erection. <laughs> it feels like, it feels like you're trying to elicit, you're trying to force a reaction out of me. And when that doesn't happen, it, it, it like pushes me the opposite direction. Like you have to work twice as hard to get mm-hmm. me back. Yeah. When that, that is such a great point. And that's why even like when, how you watch a comedy is so like important like the you know the amount of comedies like i've watched in a theater full of people that are just laughing uproariously or with family that was engaged and then you like show it to someone and they're like half paying attention or something like that and they're like this isn't funny at all and you're like well and then you feel super self-conscious about all the jokes that aren't landing because all of a sudden things that you thought were hilarious feel embarrassing when they're met with 
with silence. And in that way, it is very much like porn. Like, but yeah, I, I think I think like that's why the movie uh, it reaches this point where it becomes um, cursed for people like Aaron and I. Um, where by the third act, these 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 kind of brutal attempts to wring comedy out of us, um, it feels like we're being manipulated. Uh, and it's not working, which makes me rebel a little bit. Um, and so that feeling that you leave the movie, like, I left the movie, uh, yet again. I haven't seen it for, I don't know, five to ten years, and I, and I left it feeling pissed off. And I was like, well, let's roll the dice on it again. I felt mad at the movie, which is actually a fairly rare feeling for me, because usually when I watch a bad movie... <laughs> I felt movie, mad at last week's movie. I wasn't mad. I was just like, is this over yet? I felt just... De- I usually just feel dead inside at the end of a bad movie. This movie, when it was over, I was, I was mad that I watched it, but it's Bill's favorite movie, so maybe we should give him some chance to watch it. Well- Actually, before but before we get into the movie more, which I, I want to say, I, I feel like we we should like park a little bit and talk about Steve Martin because this is the third Steve Martin movie that we've done on the show, but technically the first Steve Martin Steve Martin movie we've done the Muppet movie, we've done Little Shop of Horrors, both feature Steve Martin. One before he had a huge movie career and was just a big comedy, and the other one is a little more like a, as a wonderful scene, but he is a he is a cameo in someone else's uh, movie. He steals the show in Little Shop of Horrors, but still, uh, still somewhat of a cameo. And this is like such a weird era of Steve Martin. So I was looking like because you see like his original set of movies, right? And they feel so goddamn like nothing else at the time, right? Like The Jerk, Pennies from Heaven, Dead Man Don't Wear Plaid, um, The Man with the Two Brains, All of Me. They feel like unconventional when he was kind of bending mainstream movies uh, around his like his comedy persona. And uh, just like, you know, some were bigger hits than others, but you just really have like, I don't know if you've ever seen Dead Man Don't Wear Plaid or... Um, or the man with two brains, Peter, especially, but like those being the that those those two plus pennies from heaven are his three f- immediate follow ups to the jerk, and like dead man don't wear plaid is this like um like we've talked about pennies from heaven, so I, I'm sorry, I guess this is the fourth Steve Martin movie that we've done. Um, we've talked about pennies from heaven, which is like an, is not a comedy is a bizarre, dark, depressing musical. That's his follow-up to The Jerk. Dead Man Don't Wear Plaid, his next movie, is a comedy in black and white that that combines a bunch of 40s noir movies and stitches together a plot that then inserts him into it. Um, and then The Man with Two Brains is like this completely unlikable... Uh, he plays a completely unlikable character who's like uh, being abused by this scientist... Um, and then I feel like we get from that into the more um, set of kind of conventional Steve Martin 80s comedies that are all just huge hits and for the most part are fantastic movies. We get Three Amigos. I mean, these are like back to back, Peter. I'm like Three Amigos, then Little Shop of Horrors, then Roxanne, then Plane, Trains, and Automobiles, then Dirty Rotten Scoundrel, then Parenthood, then My Blue Heaven, then L.A. Story. All of those movies are four to five star movies. Yeah. Uh, and that is like his his late eighties, and then all of a sudden he makes Father of the Bride in nineteen ninety, and it feels that's right after L.A. Story, uh, which is this great kind of like biting 
mean comedy that he wrote about L.A. That's just kind of a perfect Steve Martin 80s sensibility. He does Father of the Bride, where it's a remake um, of a 50s movie with Spencer, where he's in the Spencer Tracy role. And it's a, like, I like Father of the Bride. It's a very charming, it, low key, low stakes kind of movie. It feels almost like it's a. It, it feels almost like it's in the Nef- Nora Ephron mold, where it's like it's comforting, and there's this low level of, of uh, existential ennui going on, uh, where like uh, people are going through sort of upper middle class, upper middle uh, white class white people problems, and yet like you don't particular, you're not particularly offended by the fact that like. Steve Martin is complaining about like feeling um, lost in his life, despite the fact that he has like a beautiful wife and a, and his daughter is getting married and like he runs a fucking tennis shoe factory. Like it's a very uh, it's a it's in a movie that like you kind of like it's like Noah Ephron movies in that like the charm of it helps you forget and the fact that you love the the lead characters, the Tom Hanks, the Steve Martin, whatever. It kind of helps you forget the fact that like <laughs> in regular life you'd be like, shut the fuck up, stop complaining about your life. Well, yeah, and then it, but it's also him kind of treading ground. He did four or three movies before with Parenthood, but and Parenthood is a more recognizable comedy. Um, and this is like a comedy. It's a true situational comedy. Like you're you're not laughing at like, you know, Steve Martin dressing up like a cowboy. You're laughing that he's just so stressed out and his life's falling apart. And, you know, it's it's more of a family thing. And it feels like after that, he never ever really finds the Steve Martin groove again, which is so odd for someone to- in film. In, fi- in film, like on TV, like, other than Bowfinger in film, you're completely right. On TV, he's like been like incredibly funny in the Steve Martin that we remember from SNL, and also in um his uh that 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 uh, tour he did with uh, Martin Short is so fucking funny. It's so on yeah, that that is great. His book Born Standing Up, I like. I I love anytime he he. But it, it is funny that that is literally the pivot point for the rest of his career because then mm-hmm. he tries to do the 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 comedian kiss of death where i need to do something serious and he does uh grand canyon which is not a ter- lawrence cadson movie it's not terrible but he's you know he's playing a depressed person i think it's been a while since i've seen grand canyon i think he's like you know trying to kill himself and he's like a famous writer or something like a recluse then he goes again to the broad comedy thing of house sitter um and then it just is completely like Leap of Faith is fucking terrible. Have you ever seen Leap of Faith where he's a tent revivalist? I haven't seen kind of any of his like father. His 90s the, stuff? His father, between Father of the Bride and Out of Towners, I haven't seen like any of this shit. But it's funny. Like this is the 90s. Like you would, this, he, Father of the Bride is 1991. His 90s movies are like, you're looking at it. It's abysmal. Like, House Sitter's terrible. Leap of Faith's terrible. I've never seen a simple twist of faith. But I, my sense is, and then you go into Mixed Nuts, where he lost his edge. And it's not like Steve Martin was fucking like the, like Richard Pryor. But he lost that kind of Steve Martin oddness and, and meanness. And he, he went to more of the Father of Bride heartwarming stuff. Like Leap of Faith could have been a great 80s Steve Martin movie about a tent revivalist preacher that rips off everyone and accidentally, you know, has has a miracle. Instead, it becomes like this weird thing about how sucked up he is about um, trying to help people and then becomes a heartwarming drama at the end. And it's just <laughs> completely tonally off. And then you have this movie. 
followed by Father of the Bride Part 2, Sergeant Bilko, and then Out of Towners, and then, yeah, Bowfinger is great. And then we get into the fucking bringing down the house cheaper by the dozen Pink Panther Steve Martin, which is somehow worse than the 90s Steve Martin from a movie standpoint. So, like, it is something about Father of the Bride that, like, kicks off this, like, 90s stage of his career that is just uh, abysmal and not as terrible as we were going to get. And I really think, like, I think you could say that I feel bad saying this, Bill. I feel like Mixed Nuts is, like, the nadir of... Do you want to be like maybe not the nadir of his of his movies of the nineties because Sergeant Bilko is pretty goddamn bad too. Although it doesn't make me as annoyed as this movie, <laughs> but um, uh, and it has Phil Hartman who's who's funny in it. But like, I will say I think this is the nadir of like, what do you want to be, Steve Martin? Do you want to be in a heartwarming movie or do you want to have a little bit of edge to you? And this on paper feels like he gets to have both, but. At the end of the day, he gets to have neither, and then he eventually gives up that to be a, the the father of the bride role in a, a second rate Kevin Klein. Yeah, exactly. Um, he, he he tried to be uh, a second rate Bill Murray, and then he became a second rate Kelvin Klein, uh, Kelvin Klein, uh, Kevin Klein. And what we really wanted was Steve Martin, who is a, a world class comedian. <laughs> I just like when you look at that filmography and you realize he basically made 11 perfect movies in a row. Um, I mean, perfect being like, I get that there's some people that may not like Three Amigos as much as I do, but like legitimately successful, funny comedies to. But I mean, that's how much we love Steve Martin, right? Like, I think you can make the case he's made one good movie in the past 30 years and everyone still loves him in anything because he's Steve Martin. Um, but this was even when critic, I mean, critics fucking hated this movie as a 10% on Rotten Tomatoes. Everyone's like, what is this? Nor Efron falling sleepless in Seattle and Steve Martin, one of the, like the, the biggest comedy star at that time produced this. Like, what the fuck is this? I feel like we should get into why I like. Well, yeah, that, that was my transition. <laughs> I felt like that was a perfect transition bill. What, you, what there the was a transition and then, Aaron, and then Aaron, you were like, but also, fuck Nick's nuts. <laughs> you were like, you had, you served, he ruined, you served him a shit Steve sandwich, Martin. and then you were like, we should put more shit on this sandwich. <laughs> uh, I just not, like, not to get I, me defensive I, I think at all about a, the whole. Thing. I think one of the most interesting things about it is it feels like this, and it probably is right. Dab, it's 1994, right? So it's like smack dab in the middle of his career of like a pivot point and he goes in the he, it's like he says do i go heartwarming like a roxanne or a father of the bride or do i go back to edgy like the jerk or the man with two brains and pennies from heaven and instead he like go like it's it's the old news radio joke um where it's like what happens when you uh you know do you zing or do you zang and jimmy james is like oh once i'm given those two options that's when i zung and it feels like that's what he did. He he's like, do I zing? Do I zang? I'm gonna zung, and zung was to go to kind of not do either of those things, and instead become whatever the fuck bringing down the house and cheaper by the dozen two is. Uh, yeah, yeah. Bill, Bill, why don't you? I'll shut up. <laughs> I'll just call it. Call it a night. We're good. Please. Um, <laughs> no, I think it's actually important. It's like stop feeling so defensive 
I guess I don't love this movie on the merits. Um, it was as Aaron described earlier on, where like somehow right when this movie came out or on VHS that it fell into my sister and I's lap and we watched it, we'd just moved to Europe and we watched it amongst like the other 25 VHSs we had nonstop because we didn't have English speaking television and we just moved. So you were just um, the kids on vacation in uh, home alone for, yes. for years. <laughs> yes, I don't understand. It's much. a wonderful life at all. <laughs> so, I don't remember particularly liking this movie early on, but at some point between then and now, it is a movie that I have to watch every year. And whether you learn to like it or you realize things you'd missed the first like five years of watching it, eventually it becomes special to you for maybe purely nostalgia or associations around the holidays. But that is this movie for me. Um, And more broadly, my family. So we watch it every year. It's my one of my Christmas movies that I will wear wear around my neck um, and continue to watch every year going forward. So I can't necessarily take a strong position defending many of these points or whether or not it ruined Steve Martin's career. <laughs> I don't think it um, ruined his career. <laughs> but I will give it the college try. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but I, I think, I think that, I, I'm I still going to defend it. What's important? There's yeah. probably not a Christmas movie that doesn't glom onto someone like Peter and I are noted defenders of the Santa Claus and the Home the first two Home Alone movies. We know people that fucking hate those movies and that may be accurate. Like if I watched Home Alone for the first time when I was 30, I don't know. Now that was a little more of a cultural event that a lot of people ended up glomming onto as like a something they were obsessed with watching around Christmas time. But there's, it's just so easy for that to happen with Christmas movies because there's already so much joy and nostalgia and good feelings like tied up into the imagery and what's going on that like it's like if if you said to me like your favorite movie was X or Y, some terrible movie like your favorite movie is like I love X versus Ballistic or whatever the fuck that movie is X versus Sever Ballistic, I might go huh have you ever seen another action movie before? But, like, a Christmas movie is never surprising to me just because there, it's rooted in uh, liking something that is over overcooked to begin with. <laughs> yeah, and I think I think um, we talked about this uh, in our Christmas of the Cranks episode that I have an attachment to that movie for some odd reason. And, like, there is, like, a weird bit of subjective Christmas magic that, like, lets people become attached to these movies that, like, we we admit, like, on the top level um, are often very compromised. Like, sometimes they, uh, they, they feel the need, like, oh, shit, this is a family movie. And so for the last five minutes, it's just nothing but schmaltz. And you're like, well, you just gave up everything the movie was saying just to throw some schmaltz in like uh sometimes they're barely christmas movies but they've played been played on tv so often you're like well i guess i guess it's really just a movie more about uh, a guy trying to solve a family issue i don't really think it's a christmas movie um it, it, like there's not really like uh I mean, all all film is subjective, obviously, but there's not really like a science to figuring out like which one of these movies will take off, which is why it's so fascinating when like, like, why am I, why, why every year, sometimes twice a year, depending on how long I start my Christmas watching season, why do I watch 
the Ron Howard Grinch Who Stole Christmas, a movie that I I watch, I laugh at from time to time, but <laughs> largely I'm just watching it like I'm watching I don't know if train wreck is the appropriate term. It's like a a train and the they forgot to install more track and then it goes off of a cliff while a jumbo jet is trying to do uh maneuvers inside that valley and then inside that jumbo jet uh there's like a bunch of puppies and then the puppy crate drops and it explodes and blows up another train like maybe maybe that's the level of train wreck we're operating on for Grinch Who Stole Christmas this is just i use i use a much gentler term this is like miscalculated and this is like the is, car is, tips over like in what, the driveway and they're like i still have the keys in my hand was there a gust of wind <laughs> <laughs> and i think this is a movie that honestly you give the you give this the, the full control to Nora Ephron like five years later, ten years later. And it could have been a very empathetic, charming movie. It could have ended up on one of these Christmas lists that like movies I watch every single year. Like I it could have. I, I the idea Or it could have been meaner. It could have been a prototype bad Santa, right? Like yes. this is how you do like a cynical, funny Christmas movie. Yes, it could have gone it could have gone either way. I think Nora Ephron would have infused if you're gonna make a movie about a suicide outline, you have to infuse it with more empathy than the movie does, because frankly the movie is just kind of too too zany to be concerned with mental illness at all um but uh the and i don't know if the original french play what is it santa claus is a stinker um i don't know if that's that's uh any more concerned with it but regardless it just doesn't work in its presence for, present form uh, it, it's much less so by the way i've seen it you've seen it in the mm-hmm. original in the original french yes wow in my sixth grade French class. Wow, you have a deep history with this film. Maybe I we do. Should shut the fuck you up. saw um, the original French version of Mixed Nuts? Well, I didn't see it as a stage play. I saw it on a VHS in my sixth grade French class while I was living in Europe. Um, so I have seen it. And it is not at all smaltzy like... Nora Ephron decided to do it this Oh, way. so interesting. So this was, I guess we could have done any amount of research for this movie. But, so this took um, this took that something that was blacker and more cynical and tried to infuse it with a little bit of heart. Yes. Mm-hmm. The best I can Huge remember. Mistake. I mean, what I really remember is they kill the guy at the end. Um, the, the only Christmas part is that, like, the husband is he plays Santa Claus or maybe he's not a husband I don't remember but he hits his wife he comes around with a gun they get in a fight with the gun and they kill the landlord or he might have been an elevator guy I don't remember but they kill him and then they butcher him and take him to the zoo for food there's no like I found Christmas spirit and everyone ends up hooking up at the end neat little bows on it it is (laughs) truly like yeah, I mean that that kind of answers at least the mystery of how why this movie is how it is, right? Like, it, there's not enough I, Nora Ephron, or there should have been there should have been either zero or seventy percent more. <laughs> like, yeah, you can't do thirty five percent Nora Ephron in a black comedy. Yeah, because then it feels like the moment that I was talking about with the the subtitle of this episode, where hold my hand and we'll make a Christmas wish together. Like that moment lands like a fucking boulder. Like that does not. That is the part when Rita Wilson and Steve Martin like get together in the bathroom. Like I was like, am I supposed to feel good about this? <laughs> like Steve Martin sucks. She was clearly like 
drugged. She's, I mean, yeah, it was like not even right. She's drugged. Steve Martin is not a character who I say is like good or someone I'm rooting for in this movie. Um, so in the original French, that was totally true. He's like a total prick and like a self righteous. I work at you yeah. know the the hotline for suicides or whatever it was, and like he's a jerk. And I feel like. Oh, interesting. It's a jerk. He should have been the jerk. No, I'm kidding. But um, he should have been a jerk in this one, too. Yeah. Uh, that, I mean, because it that, kind of that is all like on tracks. the edge. Like, it's so easy to, to see how our hypothesizing ended up being right. And Bill came here to confirm with facts and figures and charts and a memory from the sixth grade uh, French class in Europe that. Uh, yeah, they took they sanded off all the edges and tried to make a love story, like three love stories. In it, are we talking? Are we talking about when Rob? Are we counting it as a love story when Madeline Kahn gets fucked by Robert Klein at the beach? <laughs> oh, totally. They come back holding hands. It's love. Um, but I think we're already getting into it, guys. Are you ready to pick out the? Uh, I don't know almonds. What's your least favorite part of mixed nuts? Uh, what are those big, like, waxy Brazilian ones? Not or, Brazil like, nuts? White? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Get those out of there. Well, those are just like, what What? what are we doing here? Like, uh, it's, yeah, not not a fan. What's What's the one that you, like, lean a little bit too heavily on eating as not part of a mix? <laughs> M&M's? <laughs> no, like cashews? an actual cashews. Yeah, yes, of course cashews. it's cashews. Yeah. yeah. Uh, like almonds. Whenever I eat an almond, I feel like I'm a fancy man. (laughs) This stole water resources from California. Like it's fine, but if you got a bowl full of fucking walnuts and um, you know, pistachios and uh, pistachios are solid, man. And filberts and cashews. Like I'm not like going for the almond at that moment. (laughs) Pecans, ooh. Yeah, stuff. yeah. Pecan, pecans <laughs> and walnuts are sort of like regular Hershey's chocolate. It's not meant to be eaten on its own. It's meant to be eaten in a in a, in a meal. You know, it's their ingredients basically. They're not actual food. Yeah, but fuck those Brazil nuts. Uh, that's what they should have called this movie. Yeah, Brazil nuts drive me nuts. <laughs> Just Brazil nuts. <laughs> Anyways, uh, but we'll talk about all of them. You guys ready to talk about mixed nuts? Mixed nuts drive me nuts. Where those streets up listen children listen to hear sleigh bells in the snow. Uh, Bill, it's, yes. well, you haven't got a chance to talk and defend this movie too much, and I know how much Peter loves alternate taglines, so instead of letting Peter do it, I'm going to take it from him as a punishment and say, Bill, what's your alternate tagline for Mixed Nuts? Oh, Jesus. I'm not prepared for this. Do you think we are um, ever? You listen to the show, Bill. You know it's a punishment. <laughs> not a yes. word. I don't even know what a tagline is first. Can you set the parameters <laughs> for a tagline? And then I yeah, will so provide a tagline. Yeah, so a tagline is like, um, fuck. I, well, I wasn't expecting to have to explain a tagline on the spot either. It's a thing like under the title of a movie that they're like, um, 
I'm, I'm literally now trying to think of one tagline, and I can't think of one. So, like, Army of Darkness, the tagline is, like, trapped in time, surrounded by evil, low on gas. Mm. So, or, um, uh, or Jaws, I think, is something like, don't go into the water, or something like that. Like, you know, this is Jaws on the poster, then underneath it has... Um, Superman's was famously like Superman the movie you'll believe a man can fly tagline says you're it can it come from the movie yeah normally it's on the poster of the movie no but I said can it be in the actual movie yeah I mean our thing has no rules associated with it it's just a really silly dumb thing that Peter hates that we've been doing for years that I won't let him stop doing no, I understand. Okay. I listen to the podcast. I'm just stalling. Um, that's what you do. You ask a follow-up question when you don't want to answer your question. Come again? Um, huh? I didn't catch that. Could you repeat it, please? These are great oral test-taking skills. Do you have a tagline? Mix nuts. No. And every pothole there is hope. Hold on. I actually think the, the first one was better. Mix nuts. No. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. I'm supportive of that, of that as a tagline. So, yeah. So, the movie. Sweet, salty, and crazy. Yeah, well, you said it. Uh, so, the movie starts with, uh, so there's Philip. I mean, I haven't tried to do this as quickly as possible because the whole point is it's like a fucking French farce as we've talked about. So there's too much shit happening all the time. Um, farce is, is rarely done right or rarely done entertainingly. And this is not a good example of it. So let's just let's let's go through the people. You got Philip. That's Steve Martin. Right. He he runs. Um, a suicide sui- prevention. A suicide hotline. prevention hotline with Rita Wilson, who. Uh, whose name is Catherine O'Shaughnessy, which it shouldn't be, but it is. Um, and Madeline Kahn, whose character's name is... Blanche Munchnik. Blanche Munch... Yeah, they go with the whole, like, too bad... Like, so whatever. So Blanche Munchnik and Carolyn O'Shaughnessy work with uh, work with Steve Martin as Philip, and they run um, a suicide hotline. You know, they got, like, an assortment of, of people. They got... Uh, Rita Wilson, who really cares, Madeline Kahn, who like this is I'm a secretary job. This is just a job for me. And Steve Martin, who thinks he's doing good. But of course, in the classic farce, he actually is just uh, not doing good, which, again, an incompetent person at a suicide hotline is not all as funny as this movie thinks it is. So they run into there's another couple who is Juliette Lewis plays Gracie. As well as uh, Anthony LaPaglia. Is that how you say his last name? LaPaglia, who plays Felix. He, it, it's, it's also like it's set in California. So it has that, L, you know, it's that Steve Martin like bile towards L.A. culture. And of course, L.A. at Christmas looks just like L.A. with people wearing stuff that's too hot, uh, which is kind of the aesthetic it's going for. Is everyone's extra miserable because there's not really a Christmas in L.A. Peter could probably speak more about that <laughs> in San Diego. Uh, um, I, could par- I could park there really quickly. Two things are going on here. One, all of these writers and directors probably started in new york uh especially back when this movie was made most of them probably worked in the new york film scene before it started to transition over to la then more money happened in la so they had to move to la then they had to start spending holidays away 
and they didn't have that sort of New York magical connected Christmas feeling when there's snow on the ground and you you can go see you can go see uh you know uh people making snow angels in the street and shit I don't know whatever you picture in New York beautiful Christmas or they're you know they have like Midwest roots so they picture it as as a as a, uh, a winter wonderland and then they come to LA and like because Southern California, which I live in San Diego, um, doesn't have seasons. And also, San Diego and LA, to an extent, empty out during um, Christmas time because so much of the city is people that have family back, you know, in other parts of the country. Um, the city feels even more weirdly alienating <laughs> during Christmas time. Um, yeah. That uh, it, it, it's just an odd. It's it's odd. I I I, I firmly believe that uh, a lot of it is marketing. That we were we were given this like white Christmas holiday in vision of like Christmas in Connecticut vision of of what Christmas is supposed to be. It's supposed to be snow snowy small towns in Middle America. Um, and I firmly believe that you can have a great Christmas on the on the West Coast. But it's that contrast of like you know. Uh, sort of drunk, unshaven Santa. Well, I guess Santa's always unshaven, but you know what I mean. <laughs> Unbearded, but also unshaven. <laughs> yeah, but you can't wear a beard in that heat. The coats, coat and the hat's bad enough, Peter. Yeah, and, and like that sort of the wearing the the Santa coat is like is is the the contrast, right? Is like I still have to do all the like winter shit that Santa has, but it's seventy five or eighty five degrees, right? Yeah, and, like, it also fits with, like, I know Nora Ephron's the person who wrote this, but, like, Steve Martin, L.A. story, he had a very, like, he was a a comic who lived in L.A. and wrote a whole movie about how fucking L.A. sucks and everyone who lives there hates it. So, like, at the very least, whether he had any input into that tone, it it really matches his aesthetic from just a couple years uh, before. I do feel like the Venice Beach thing is important, though. It's like its own subculture. I mean, like, it's a bit more out there and more fitting of the characters you meet living in the, you know, heart of that neighborhood. That is true. Sure, that is true. One of the, people say LA doesn't have, like, true neighborhoods or true neighborhood feeling. Venice is one of the few areas in LA that, like, famously feels like an a specific area. Um, obviously, gentrification has had an effect on that, and I don't live in LA, so I can't speak to that, but yeah. Yeah, so anyway, so they, uh, Juliette Lewis's husband is pregnant, or sorry, what just happened? <laughs> Juliette Lewis is pregnant, and there's a lot there's of There's a xenomorph between- in this? I know. Um, no, he's a dog. Make a junior, <laughs> too, in the middle of it, uh, which I think is also a remake of a French comedy, Dennis by Beach. the way. Uh, the movie, Junior. Um, but, yeah, so uh, they, they're dating, or their boyfriend and girlfriend, and he, they're having a fight. Um, they're going to come back later on because you find out that Rita Wilson is actually knows Julia w- w- uh, Lewis from the clothing store that they run. So anyway, Steve Martin, fig- I'm just going to say their actor's name because it's way easier to follow. Um, he um, he gets a notice from Gary Shandling, who plays the, kind of the landlord, that they're getting kicked out of their building. Uh, Gary Shandling is the one of the only things I fight. 
successful about this movie. He's in it for three minutes, which may as Gary Shandling, as Gary Shandling, but like an even meaner Gary. Like if Gary Shandling was a fucking scum sucking landlord, which is all landlords, but specifically, I just wanted to be clear. Um, so he's kicking them out. Doesn't care what they're doing. Steve Martin. There's a, they have a few examples of how all of them were on the phone. Rita Wilson is compassionate, caring, there to save lives. Steve Martin is there to save lives and get accolades but is terrible at it he's like asking them interrogative questions um and madeline khan treats it as a as a job that she's that she's there for so uh madeline khan leaves to go spend christmas with her ex her dead husband's family um she gets stuck in an elevator that i'll come back later steve martin's trying to hide the fact that they're getting kicked out while he figures out how to get the five thousand dollars for the for the rent, meanwhile, um, uh, Live Schreiber um, uh, calls in. Uh, who, he plays a trans woman and says that he's going to kill himself. And Steve Martin and he's like, "I just need to be around people right now. Um, please come to. I just need. Can I just come down there and talk to you guys?" And Steve Martin finally gives in and gives the address. Rita Wilson is upset about this. Um. So then again, it's it's so much shit going on because it's a goddamn farce and everything has little things. There's also Adam Sandler who works in the building, who has a crush on Rita Wilson's character, and they cast Adam Sandler specifically to pay, play Opera Man, I guess. Um, or the version so, of Adam Sandler that'll come on and sing the Hanukkah song, right? Like it's basically just Adam Sandler. It's only in this voice the whole time. Yeah, it's, but he also uh, it's he a did choice. That, yeah, he he did that voice for his like his stage persona too outside of SNL. Like we forget how deeply annoying Adam Sandler was for. Well, before, but the point was like he, he, he was beloved too. He did him in Billy Madison, but it was modulated, right? Like, it's like, you know, he's drunk and he's like, stop swearing at me. Like, and it was, or like Opera Man, which was a five minute bit. Here he just decides that's how his character talks. Uh, he still writes songs, of course. They know, they know where the Adam Sandler money is in 1994 anyways. Um, uh, as opposed to shill for random fast food corporations. That would come a couple years later. Dunka, 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 um, dunka, dunka, <laughs> uh, but so he's in the building he's in love with Rita Wilson uh, so eventually Liv Schreiber comes over it has we'll probably spend a little bit of time in this has some very awkward interactions um, with Steve Martin that are uh, transphobic and also like well I think Liv Schreiber does a good job of portraying the character like it's just kind of a bad like I don't know like he, she, she's calling into this like suicide hotline saying like I, I like I, I'm at the end of my rope I'm about to kill myself and then she gets there and is just like I'm gonna be annoying to everyone which is just an odd I don't know we'll we'll, we'll spend some more time on that um, so eventually you find so then yeah so Juliette Lewis and Anthony LaPagula end up over there um, they end up I forget now I'm I'm literally blanking why does Anthony end up at the vet they give him some pills, right? No, he he takes pills at the vet. He ends up there because he gets a concussion from the fruitcake. Is that right? Oh, yeah. They, he throws. Yes, that's sorry. So Steve Martin throws a. He gets a gift. Everyone finds out they're going to lose it. Everyone's mad at him. He throws a fruitcake out the window, which, hit, which hits him. They take him to the vet. He takes vet pills. Meanwhile, so Juliet Lewis is now covering the phone lines. Madeline Kahn is like 
gets knocked out by Liv Schreiber. Madeline Kahn eventually leaves, meets Robert Klein. They go fuck on the beach and then come back. Liv Schreiber's like, oh, clearly I'm, I'm bothering all of you people. I'm going to leave too. But then in, there's everyone kind of gets back there and they're all fucked up and they're all arguing. And they accidentally shoot off a gun a few times. Um, and that ends up uh, – they also then hear a knock at the door that ends up killing Gary Shandling, who's there because the elevator was broken with Madeline Kahn in it. So they like decide how they're going to hide the body. They tie him up in a Christmas tree and try to take him out into Venice to, to the boardwalk. And uh, I'm just laughing at how fucking dumb this all is. But anyway, you're it's so funny. It's you're laughing. It's, yeah, you're laughing because you yeah, love it. so great. So anyways, but of course, these, these, all these morons can't make it work. So the, the body comes out and the police are there and they're like, oh, this dead, never mind. It's the fucking, what's the something strangler? The seaside, seaside, seaside strangler. strangler. And uh, so you actually get $100,000 for finding the seaside strangler. And then, uh, which of course then gets Steve Martin's $5,000. Although, does he really need it? Because the landlord's dead. Although I suppose someone gets his property uh, and everyone uh, wins. And also somewhere in there when Rita Wilson's all drugged up, Steve, uh, he confesses there. They can Steve Martin and Rita Wilson confess their love for each other and hook up. Uh, Adam Sandler, who's in love with Rita Wilson and writes her a song, but she obviously loves Steve Martin. So then he recognizes he has a comedy connection with Liv Schreiber and they hook up. And then, of course, Madeline Kahn hooks up with uh, Robert Klein, who doesn't say like another word for the rest of the movie. Uh, yeah. So that is, yeah, we should never do farces. Like we, we complain about too much plot. That's too much plot. Yeah. Um, and this movie has a... You, you, you forgot Parker Posey and John Stewart. I know as rollerbladers. For like, this movie has okay. a has the tenacity to waste a absolutely like all timer cast. Like you take this, this is like one of the best comedy casts of all time. Like I, I can't, I can't imagine. And the best thing is, like I was saying, like what could you have made this movie with the same people five years later, ten years later, and make it good? I think in most cases, um, most cases, definitely with Nora Ephron, definitely with Steve Martin, um, definitely with Adam Sandler. Um, yeah, probably the same for Madeline Kahn and Rita Wilson. But like that i think that in that case making this movie a few years later with uh, with a more uh i don't know <laughs> a, a, a director that underst- understood herself a little bit more I, I don't know how to say that without sounding condescending um that you could have you could have made just an excellent movie out of this damn cast and you said the one person i think comes off okay and this is Gary Shandling i think uh we have to talk a little bit about how uh, Leave Schreiber's character works despite the movie. Yeah, yeah. So Gary Gary Shandling, uh, he is good in this movie. Gary Shandling only works in that like his character is, I think, hitting the exact notes that the movie wants him to hit. So he's only in it for a couple movies. He's very funny in both scenes. Uh, like I said, there is a few moments in this movie that are legitimately funny. They're few and far between, and they're they're covered in a bunch of other stuff. But like, I agree. Like this cast is phenomenal, and it's why it actually makes way more sense. I know we joke about forgetting people's names, and and it's just true. Sometimes we forget characters' names in movies that we watch. It makes sense to refer to the entire cast here by by their just actor's name for lack of to 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 be to add clarity to the proceedings because. 
every single person in the cast, most people listening to this podcast will know by name. Which tells you something. That's not true of most casts. Yeah, yeah. And and they all were at either fully established. In the case of Madeline Kahn, she'd been in a ton of uh, a ton of uh, um, um, uh, Mel Brooks movies. Uh, Steve Martin, yeah. well past his rise. Right. This is this is him in his uh, do anything you want kind of mode, which is kind of funny that this is sandwiched between the two Father of the Bride movies. Um, and then. Um, Leif Schreiber, Adam Sandler, they're on their rise up. Stephen Wright is has emerged already as like a '90s alt comic, but you know, he's yeah, we didn't mention Stephen of, Wright. Yeah, in the, he's got a lot of runway left. Rob Reiner is already. St- by the way, Stephen Wright was not a '90s alt comic, dude. So he only has two albums. One was from like 2006, and one I want to say it's either like early '80s or late '70s. His ni- Wright's 1985 comedy album entitled "I Have a Pony." Yeah. That's yeah, so eighty five. So we were both off by ten years. Um, Fair, <laughs> but yeah, he's he's someone who like was associated with like the Janine Garofalo kind of yeah. like nineties alt comedy and had like a boom, um, a boom after the sort of like zip. He had a boom in contrast to the zippy like Jay Leno era of eighties stand up, the like uh, cocaine bouncy Andrew Dice Clay era. He yeah. had a, a strict contrast to that, which um, obviously helped write the story of what 90s alt comedy would be. Also, um, as long as – really quickly, it is amazing that I did mention he only has the two albums, one from the, I guess, 85 and one from, I was right, 2007, 2006, 2007. Um, the, you know what the name of his second album is, Peter? Did you see? I Still Have a Pony. I, yeah, it's called I Still Have a Pony. <laughs> Good. He released two albums 22 years apart. One's called I Have a Pony, and the other one's called I Still Have a Pony. That's commitment. It's amazing. Like, Stephen Wright is one of my favorite just people. Yeah. Like, I mean, I think Peter probably, I know this was true of, of myself. Like, the first comic that I felt, like, personally invested in and was, like, obsessively telling people about was, like, Mitch Hedberg before... Yes. Um, and like him and Carlin basically because I had a mixed path but continue yeah and so like when I found out like when I think I saw some interview of Mitch Hedberg in the late 90s where um, they said that his like well obviously your comedy is influenced by Stephen Wright and he laughed and I remember like obsessively trying to find clips on Kazaa of Stephen Wright of like who is this guy and then of course once I realized who it was I recognized him from shit like Half Baked and other movies that I had seen but uh, it's yeah, oddly this- appropriate that, that for his stage persona that he put up two albums 22 years apart yeah it's perfect but uh, and, and by stage persona I mean everyone in real life says that he's actually like that um, and that yeah. like oh it's not it's not a persona <laughs> If it was, it was. It stopped being a persona thirty years ago, forty years ago. <laughs> Have you seen? You've seen the Jerry Seinfeld Ori Adams comedian, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, that would be something that would be worth as like a documentary month to cover at some point. But I remember because Stephen writes in that as himself because it's a documentary, and Ori Adams, like Stephen Wright, asks um, Ori Adams a few questions, and he gets all fucking pissed at him, and then he's like, "Who's that guy? Who's that guy?" and I forget who it is. Like, he won an Oscar. <laughs> like, Stephen Wright won an Oscar for short film. Like, he's, like, maybe one of the most influential um, 
comedians of, of his generation. And I just remember Oriana's being like, well, I've never even heard of him. <laughs> it's like, well, maybe that's a problem with you, Ori. Yeah. Not Stephen Wright. Anyways. Yeah. Most definitely. Um, but he basically gets like one quick joke um, for a comedian that made his steez uh, off of uh, being depressed. You know, it feels like they really... <laughs> they really wasted that one. Um, but yeah. It, really, I, I actually think that's one of the few moments outside of Gary Shandling that legitimately made me laugh just because the follow up where they wait for him to call back was so, like that actually fit with a dark version of this movie that could have been um, maybe a regressive and have a lot of asterisks attached to it, but at least funny in an audacious way. I'm just not interested in that version of the movie at all, and the version I'm a- I am interested in is Nora Ephron making a movie with a bunch of very of a, a, a life affirming movie that has a bunch of very very dark jokes in it, and like one of them that would be great is like if you get fucking Stephen Wright on your cast bill, you make him a regular, like he calls in yeah. every day, <laughs> like, and then someone's just like, oh hi Stephen, like they're not they've completely abandoned protocol because he's called so much and everyone recognizes his voice, like that sort oh, of. Oh, and then he and plays himself. Joke out of That's it. funny. Yeah. And then at the end of the movie, he has some sort of breakthrough on Christmas, right? Like the breakthrough is he's not calling anymore because he finally like f- found the thing that was missing in his life, or he finally got on antidepressants or whatever, or it's a fake breakthrough. Like he's like, I started smoking weed and I feel great like that some some sort of joke to make like uh this all kind of come together but my biggest problem with the movie is that it doesn't it doesn't actually like it doesn't actually like tie together any sense of empathy to the core of the movie and the entire core of the movie is about empathy we're supposed to empathize with steve martin and it fails steve martin is supposed to empathize with his callers and it fails like he doesn't see leave schreiber as Obviously, he doesn't see Leif Schreiber's character, Chris, as a woman. He sees uh, Leif Schreiber's trans character as a man in a dress. Well, the movie does, too. Like, yeah, yeah. Steve, Steve Martin is our perspective character. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> casting this on Steve Martin. Um, it sounded like <laughs> it. No, I, no, I don't think you are. But I think it's important to note that, like, because we've said how despicable or implied, like, Steve Martin's not a good character. Like, I don't think the movie has the same... Uh, feelings towards Steve Martin that you and I do. Yes, but uh, so so, the, so I, I, do I think, think it should point. though. I think it's supposed to. You, you, I, I think when he realizes like that, Rita Wilson's been in love with him and this wonderful person, and if she, like, I think he is supposed to be a little shitty. But, like, at no point in this movie am I happy that Steve Martin ends up with Rita Wilson or is considered, like, someone who actually had a a heart of gold that was sometimes – like, I, I don't – I kind of feel like he's a garbage person throughout. Yeah, I, no, I'm saying he's supposed to be a garbage person, I think. There's, like, zero redeeming qualities of him. But – you th- wait, but hold on. Except, but you for he, except the- he is very handsome, but they did some weird shit with his hair in this movie that I deducts from this. that. Like Steve Martin is yeah. like a very handsome dude, and they totally obliterated it. He works at a suicide hotline. But do you think, Bill? Like, do you think that the movie thinks he's a shitty person throughout? Like this movie thinks he's a shitty person throughout. I think so. Hmm. I mean, there's a, a, a version of me watching this where I think everyone is crazy. Like, not just shitty, but like, they're all 
suffering in their own way. Yeah, I just, I don't like, I think too much of, I think the, and maybe this is just Nora Ephron directing, and so she doesn't know how to direct, uh, or she's used to directing heartwarming, that it feels like it's supposed to be. But, but like, the whole thing about him only being good on the phone, right? Like, all he's ever trying to do is be, like, self-righteous and that he solves people's problems. But he's bad on the phone. That's what I'm saying. Like, he's bad at everything. And like they like she tells Rita Wilson tells him he's only good on the phone and he recognizes that. But like I think that's also an acknowledgement that he's you know <laughs> he he's a horrible person except for when he tries to save lives on the phone. And we recognize he's bad on the phone. So w- what is there? Huh? Like what what are we supposed to latch on to to like him in the movie? That's an interesting point because you're right. The movie is clearly like he's bad on the phone. He pulls out his nose. He yells questions at people. And Rita Wilson thinks that he's good on the phone. But I don't know if that's Rita Wilson trying to see good in everyone because that's kind of her character. But I guess that kind of goes to let's let's talk about the uh, more specifically the Liv Schreiber part. This is the say something nice portion for me. Liv Schreiber in this movie, I think, is is one of the actually only like really great parts and makes me smile. He's awesome. I love his, the dance scene so much, but it takes me back to Steve Martin in a hurry because I actually think Steve Martin – Loses himself in the moment. So, Leif Schreiber, as uh, it plays a trans character named Chris, we're introduced to uh, this character uh, basically calling a suicide hotline, asking for help, and just wants to spend the holiday with anybody. And we find out immediately why that is, because uh, she walks down the stairs and is immediately dead named by her entire family in unison. Uh, all of them chant, Arnold, Arnold, Arnold. <laughs> it's like brutal, man. And they're all sort of... It's making fun of her height because they call her Arnold Schwarzenegger because she's so big. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's not. It's, I don't it's, think it's, it's a dead her, name. It's not. It's not. It's not oh. I mean, I'm, not that this family would not dead name her. Like this family would have. It's a horrible dead household. Her, to live but in, they're calling in her situation. You know, because I mean, Liv Schreiber uh, is is like six six, I think, or six five. He's a very tall individual. So you know, the character he portrays in this movie, Chris, she is also that height. And as such, they're all making fun of how big she is. Yeah, so that's okay, they, okay. Because cool. they, they specifically say Arnold Schwarzenegger. Like, do the thing where you're Arnold Schwarzenegger. And she's obviously like, for obvious reasons, she is trying to be feminine. So being compared to the, the, I mean, this is 1994's problem. The muscles of yeah, Venice the, the, Beach. the manliest man who talks about, like, how he hates girly men. Like, yeah. it's specifically insulting. Okay, cool. That's that's a good correction. Um, but it's still sort of like they're they're trying. It's to still impose, shitty. Yeah, they're trying to impose masculinity. It's yeah. just a, a weirder version of that. Um, and it's this sort of like weirdly, um, this picture of this weirdly like nineteen fifties house. Like everyone Midwest- is like wearing it's a like, Midwestern family in fucking yes. Venice Beach. They're all wearing sweater vests and like decorating the tree together on on Christmas Eve, and it's just like, what is going on here? Um. And uh, Chris goes to uh, the place to look for help. And uh, eventually Steve Martin realizes that this is who the person is. Um, And uh, he starts to talk about dancing with his sister, like this weird, like old story. And like, it's supposed to be sort of about how he's bad in love. And um, 
he starts to talk about how he won some sort of dam- dance competition with his sister and Lee Schreiber, uh, Chris, uh, naturally, I think, assumes that Chris Mar- uh, Steve Martin is flirting with her or, you know, uh, is in some way saying, you know, let's let's dance or it's just innocently being like, do you want to dance with me? Like, it's Christmas. I want to, like, let's have a party a little bit. And uh, uh, Steve Martin makes all these gay panic faces. And then as Bill pointed out, Starts to get well, and and Madeline Kahn is also like, there's like shocked when when she's at the door, and she she is unconscious. She she is unconscious during this whole thing, and then wakes Mm -hmm. up to Steve Martin and uh and and Chris dancing. Yeah, so and and she's she. That's when she storms (laughs) off and says, "You guys are all Aaron." I don't know why you're having trouble remembering all the times that characters are unconscious. (laughs) (laughs) It's a lot. <laughs> Most of the movie, the characters are unconscious. Yeah, so here's, I mean, here's my comment. Yeah, it basically, yeah, like it starts off like he's doing all these gay panic faces, and then he starts to get into the moment, and it's a beautiful moment. And then uh, I think where Aaron's going is, is it turns to not be a great moment. But like, I think Liev Schreiber plays the character with dignity and yes. poise and beauty. All, like Liev Schreiber makes. For a very pretty lady, like Lou Schreiber is this like Amazonian, <laughs> Amazonian like like uh very like like uh he, he like leans into the sort of posture that that is uh, that uh you know seems to speak to his soul or speak to the soul of Chris I should say so her soul and it's kind of like a beautiful little performance in the middle of this movie that's full of like uh steve martin's like i'm the straight guy i'm the zany guy i'm the straight guy i'm the zany guy and and like yeah Lee schreiber seems like dialed into chris so here's my complicated take on this whole thing so i agree 100 live Sh- it's tough live schreiber is fantastic at a at a a thankless role in a movie that doesn't respect her character and she, and he does a very good job um portraying a trans woman like again i don't like it's a movie from 1994 um i'm not saying that that doesn't mean that i should expect uh it not to 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 treat it as a, as a punchline but but uh, or that it's okay that it treats it that character is a punchline but i guess um I, I shouldn't be too surprised but here's here's i guess here's where it gets super complicated so i also think they do the character disservice the, the character uh chris when she is calls in and she, she's not suicidal she, no she she does say like i just can't be alone i'm at the end of my rope so maybe like there's definitely an implication of of suicidal she, we see where she lives and it's fucking you know the literally the the worst place for a goth trans woman is a fucking eddie bunker's house or whatever (laughs) um and but then when she gets there after the initial like awkwardness and dance i feel like the movie is having fun with how how awkward her character is and and that's i again i'm not saying that because they make her not just they make her constantly like in in that farce way like the the person who's in the back uh being zany and causing mischief while other things are happening until eventually she gets offended and leaves and adam sandler's character brings her back and i feel like the movie spends a lot of that time laughing at her and her character 
beyond uh, beyond Steve Martin's gay panic stuff. And I guess here's the part that I feel is really, really, really complicated. Am I watching a character who does want to be around person is in a fucking meltdown situation and doesn't and and just decides to kind of be herself as a way to exercise her depression or her demons and so is like her natural self is kind of dancing around a room and being bouncy and charming and stuff like that and that contrasts to a bunch of people fighting and having meltdowns and not knowing how to deal like is 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 or is the movie saying look at this look at this person who's already dressing up like a woman and now look at how she's behaving around everyone and i i I like the reading of the first one better, but I feel like the movie is saying the second one. And yeah. so, like, it's like performance it's so... it almost overpowers the intent of the script. And yeah. that's what I like about it is that, like, if I'm going to say something nice, it's that, like, during all the zaniness, I have, like, a little bit of, uh, I have a little bit of, like, a compass, which is, uh, how much fun Liev Schreiber's character Chris is yeah. having just being a person yeah and which which i like like i said i like in a vacuum but i do feel like the movie is saying look what a disaster you brought into this house and it's true bill by the end of the movie there's like well isn't everyone a nut in their own way but i do like i do generally have like the the whole point is it's mixed nuts they're all kind of crazy and as i said to you guys in a deadpan text it's like yes look at this trans woman what a nut like and that's that's what the movie's doing and again it's a movie from 1994 i shouldn't like i'd I'd love i wish i could expect better i can't i I would agree with you if you don't take the whole like like i guess i have no reason not to trust the character right that leave is playing right so when she gets there and she acts like her zany self i'm inclined to believe that's the real character. Yeah, but I mean, I, I disagree that I disagree because I think the movie can have ill intents towards a character, whether they thought it was ill intent or not. And as such, like, yes, even 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 Liv Schreiber is doing a good job. Every other character's reaction to it and the way the movie thinks that you should be reacting to it uh, is is different than what Leaves doing. And so how do you feel about when Adam Sandler falls for Chris? That's a weird so, moment because that's... Is it a punchline or is it because I, you guys are wrong here? So, I don't know. Like, that's again, almost like where oh, it gets two, to- two nuts. They found each other because there's no, there's, no, there's no joke about Adam Sandler being like, there's just Adam Sandler and Chris bonding and Adam Sandler telling her she's beautiful. So, you're, so you're right like, you're right like it's in, 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 uh, in this weird specific vacuum. It's like uh, even... In this, in this weird specific and it's vacuum. in their own little Venice Beach world, just to be clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In this in this vacuum, it's saying like, oh, Chris found her her partner and someone that accepts her for who she is. It's just that it's in this broader context of the movie not really particularly taking mental illness seriously. So it feels like it's just like, huh, well, she found a nut nutty enough to love her. It, you could read that either way, but like... I don't. The rest of the movie is not giving me good faith, you know? True. And it's also at a time where, like, I don't want to say they're common, but I think a lot of the mainstream definition around trans people was that there was a mental illness associated with it. So the fact 
that just that character is in this kind of like what a bunch of nuts group is even if 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 the movie even if on a macro level the movie has holistic like hey nuts deserve love too <laughs> like you're like oh okay yeah i mean everyone deserves oh but you're saying uh like it's this weird thing where I, that's why i said i feel like i have complicated feelings about it and again we're we're three cis uh, straight cis men uh we've had trans women on this show before we will again um it sounded like a threat (laughs) yeah we will will make friends of the show deal with us once again. but ultimately like this is definitely a movie where i'd be very interested in some of those people that we know in our lives yes about their perspective because i do feel like even you know from my uh from my perspective it's just as complicated because and and mostly it's complicated thankfully because liv schrieber doesn't play her as a punchline um it's just the the way that the entire movie uh, presents her and laughs at her feels not great. But again, it, it's set in an environment that it, where the character playing herself doesn't doesn't himself doesn't feel like she is a punchline. I'm sorry for a little pronoun confusion because it is a straight cis uh, actor, a male straight cis actor playing a trans woman, and um, and so that. Uh, whether what you're referring to as a different pronoun so i apologize a bit also we should note like uh bill have you seen goon i don't you should see oh goon. my god goon is goon. goon is so good uh it's like a it's like a hockey comedy and uh it's like uh lee schreiber plays the like enforcer on the team that's opposite of he's like the almost the villain of the movie but not quite because the movie is a little sweeter than that um, you should you should definitely watch Goon. I think you'd like it. I think you'd love Goon. Goon is the movie that goes. Wait, did we give up on Sean William Scott too soon? Yeah, <laughs> it's a movie. Was he good? Yeah, Sean William Scott. They just made him a big sweetie, and it works really well. It's so good. Like his Stifler stuff was a terrible miscalculation. He's a sweetie, but it's all, but the reason I bring it up is because Liv Schreiber in it is. Uh, I wouldn't say the like the ultimate in like man because it's kind of a weird thing to say, but like he's he's the he's the the, the alpha. The, yes, he's like a he's like an alpha wolf in that. Like he's got like he's got his normal Liev Schreiber. Uh, what's the I show he's Liev on? Uh, Just in general. not Bosch. It's the show everyone loves. He's Don, Ray, Ray Donovan. Donovan. He's got his Ray, Ray Donovan, Donovan versus Bosch. It's the Godzilla <laughs> versus King Kong of our time. <laughs> <laughs> Ray Donovan versus Bosch would be something I would watch. I would watch. Yeah, <laughs> I would watch that. I would watch this film. Uh, I don't. I haven't uh, watched Ray, Ray Donovan or Bosch, but <laughs> two guys in suits that like I. I would spend most of the movie going. Are they good guys? Are they cops? Are they detectives? What? What's up? What do Bosch and Ray? Do- are they mob bosses? <laughs> <laughs> All, those shows have been on for six to eight seasons and i have no idea what job ray donovan or bosch do <laughs> i'm close i'm not I'll gonna look though. it up no one look it up you're listening to this episode and you look it up and tell me what ray donovan or bosch do for a living or what kind of show are they comedies are they dramas mr i have no idea don't ruin it for me i will wait i just assume everything's like a mashup of you know special victims unit and csi i'm gonna wait until bosch versus ray donovan comes out to find out me too um 
Yeah, the uh, but oh, so my point is that uh, 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 Leif Schreiber plays this like all, what I can describe as is yeah, I think I think uh, I think Bill said alpha like alpha wolf kind of character in that, and it's so lovely that he's a performer that like will uh, even in in a movie like this or in uh, um, what's the well, taking Woodstock will play uh, <laughs> trans, trans characters will play women. Yeah. Um, with, with dignity and respect and like, he gives that sort of like, he gives that sort of seriousness to whatever role he's jumping into. And I, I find that ex- exceedingly charming as a performer. Um, we should probably although, talk about Although it is worth noting, there is a, there is a common criticism, which a common in, and one that I agree with is that one of the problems with, with straight cis men always playing trans women in movies that it, it uh, enforces a stereotype that uh trans women are just uh, uh straight men who are uh, dressing up or wearing costumes of women which yeah it's a, it's a complicated discussion that i don't think us three are, are qualified to have but it's um if you take if you can take the ask that uh a performer can play a role that that does not necessarily align with their their gender um that uh if you can take that ask and you can you can you, you can accept that i think that given that constraint uh Liev schreiber does an amazing job obviously there's tons more more dialogue to be had here but i'm saying within the constraint that this was a 90s movie where um trans women were treated as at best as nuts at best yeah. at best uh a harmless joke and at yeah. worst, uh, violent serial killers. Um, within that that limited context, uh, it, it was just nice to see the movie not. It was nice to see this though. Though the script was treating uh, Chris as a nut, the performer was like, "I want to push away from that." Yeah, if it, if it, um, yeah, at a minimum, if a straight cis man is playing a trans care a trans woman, at least. Uh, the character or the actor themselves is not playing it with disdain or derision or anything like that, like playing it with imbuing them with humanity. So, I mean, that's kind of a minimum. And it's I mean, it is impressive that I think he did that in a time when um, I think most I think ninety nine point nine percent of straights as actors you cast in that role played as a joke. Yeah. So uh, what else is we're talking about <laughs> this movie? Um, let me look at my notes and uh, say nothing. No, nothing. <laughs> no, we got nothing. Bill, Bill, have you had enough? The seaside strangler. The seaside strangler. Yeah, but he's I, the I best part. I told you that the movie like lets you think that the whole group of people murdered someone on accident as a joke, and then uh, they're just like, "Oh, actually, that was the serial killer that we talked about in the first act." <laughs> I was wondering once they crossed that line and killed Gary Shandling and put him in a Christmas tree, and this is when characters are starting to find love in the Nora Ephron heartwarmingness gets turned up a lot. I was like, huh. huh. How are you getting out of this jam? <laughs> because your pregnant character did shoot someone in the head. So and now you're hiding the body in a Christmas tree. So Yeah, set to great Christmas music. It's brilliant. Um, What's, what's funny is, is that as I'm describing this movie and talking about it, like I can see why it would be funny. It's just not, <laughs> and I know I don't, you have to watch it about fifteen so times, and all these things like, blend in. As I'm recapping the plot, like I'm recognizing the escalating ridiculousness, 
but why is it funny to me in concept but not was not funny to me in practice it's confusing the first few times you watch it too like you don't pick up on all the little stuff I think in the film. So is, is your thing like I need to watch this movie I gave half a star on Letterbox more? Yes. I don't know if that's going to happen. I don't watch movies I gave five stars on Letterbox that much. I've seen well, The Godfather the twice. It's also got really good music, and I hope you guys appreciate that. It start. It, it actually like the the little uh, similar to Christmas with the Cranks, like the the uh, selected music at times yeah. is that is pretty pretty good uh the song that opens uh the movie is pretty good it's um the drifters, yeah, the drifters. white christmas <laughs> it's uh it's uh, <laughs> uh i'm dreaming of a white christmas uh and if you want to get your child back i'm you're gonna need to pay five thousand dollars in the big oak tree in the park <laughs> uh style christmas but you've got like what do you do on new year's eve which is a good one when they're dancing i love that scene like if, if you play it uh when i'm not expecting I, I tear up a little bit and you're gonna have to play the mix nuts at some point whoever edits this episode <laughs> pecans walnuts pistachio it's like a, it's like a, it's like in best a Boston show and he's like yeah. pine nuts pistachio nuts all, all natural, all, all natural. <laughs> Elmer, will you yeah, stop yeah, naming nuts? nuts? <laughs> and that's where I get to my say pecans. Pistachio nuts. Well, Bill, I'll tell you what. What what I've are got like so you've seen a hundred times? Got to talk about. Yeah. What what do you want to talk about? And what like besides the just the fact that it's a Christmas movie that like connected you to the United States while you and your sister watched it and you watched it over and over which again no judgment makes complete sense why uh, good bad or ugly this just ends up being a tradition for you uh, what what are some things in there that you think were missing that we should have liked more uh, Madeline Kahn just in general I love Madeline Kahn yeah I love Madeline Kahn I mean, you describe her as someone who's, like, just doing her job, which is accurate, totally. But, like, the way she does it is just brilliant. I love when she gets the pervert who calls in multiple (laughs) times. And she's like, I believe you were discussing my cherry. (laughs) And, like, totally diffuses that. Like, she's, like, I think, you know, you said there's only a couple funny moments. I think hers hit a lot of times. Yeah. Even... Something as stupid as her playing her made-up song in the elevator. Oh, that's great. Um, where it's kind of like a weird rap song where she gets a good beat yeah. going. Yeah, I like that. I'm stuck in the elevator. <laughs> like, again, you can't say you like that when you've already said, like, m- multiple occasions, there's one funny moment in the movie. I said, I um, named some standout ones in my notes. I did, I didn't list off every moment and go, not funny, check, not funny, check. Well, I just... You're giving the listener the wrong impression that none of the jokes. I actually went to, I actually, there's an Excel doc um, for the movie uh, and every single joke. And I have had to check a little check mark uh, in each column. Um, But uh, yeah, the, the, um, do we want to wrap up? Is that where we're at? Sorry. No, I want to hear more stuff that Bill likes. Yeah, Bill, Bill, Bill. What, do you, what do you, um, yeah, w- w- explain yourself. It'd be funny if Bill brought like a lawyer on this episode. Wait, hold on, hold on. <laughs> we're forgetting something that he texted us that this is Adam Sandler's second best performance after Uncut Gems. And I'm someone who likes 
quite a lot of Adam Sandler movies, even though he is he he definitely phones in some of them. But here's gonna I'm gonna list some Adam Sandler per- performances that I enjoy quite a bit that I definitely think are better in this movie. You have the obvious ones. You have funny people. You have punch drunk love. You have uncut gems. But I'll also say Billy Madison better performance. Big Daddy better performance. Um, yeah, Happy Gilmore. Happy Gilmore better performance. Um. I feel like, oh, uh, 50 First Dates, better performance. Um, I'm trying to think if there's any other Adam Sandler movies that... I haven't seen The Waterboy in a while. Work. Oh, Dirty Work. Sure, he is the devil. Yeah, better performance. I'll give that. I'll... He, he was not better in Waterboy. Um, I said that mostly to be inflammatory, just so that you guys would... But you clearly... Yeah, I know. But you clearly like his performance in this. And I'm... Like, I think the ending sweetness is there. But I mean, I... There's a reason that that people find Adam Sandler uh, cute and adorable and even sexually attractive, and uh, I think you start to see that um, that a peak of that at the end of the movie when he drops the voice and is just talking totally normally to Chris. Like you start to see that like when Adam Sandler just just says little jokes and and is just like humble and like sh- a little bit shy, um, like. That's the sort like that's the sort of thing that like made people fall in love with him, as opposed to like um, some of his peers, which were just accepted as like joke machines or like uh, you know or like uh, there's a reason why David Spade and Dennis Miller did not have the career that Adam Sandler did, right? Like, and I think Adam Sandler is a legitimately talented actor. I think he's a very funny person. I think he has admitted how lazy he's been because it lets him hang out with friends and make money and when he commits to either trying to write funny shit like i would say some of his early or mid to late 90s stuff or um commit to a character like his more uh compelling dramatic and comedic works like i think i think he's really good i didn't complain like i think it's it's a weird choice for him to do opera man this whole movie but like i don't well, there's, there's but what's wrong with the character i mean he's clearly got some issues Right, and he's a bit character down the hall. Who sings the song. I mean, it's but that's the thing. He's not part of the nuts. He just is in the building, and I think he's just supposed to be kind of. He's part of the nuts, to be clear. Well, I mean, they're mixed, so I guess he's not exactly like. I, I would argue the the film has nothing but nuts. Yeah, precisely. Um, yeah, sure. Plus, he's got a good plan, right? <laughs> uh, but um, he spent a year writing. Like, I do like like when he's like, I spent a year writing that song, and it'll probably never end. <laughs> like, that's it's it's funny. The song is sweet. Like, I don't have any. Uh, like, I'm not bothered by anything. And so, like, oh, his he's way funnier than everything. That happens he's totally back. like within the context of the character. He's totally sincere to Chris. Yeah, I agree. Yes, 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 like, yes. And that's important if you're in the camp that you believe that it's Philip, Steve Martin being the asshole and it's not the film. Yeah, but like I still think – like let me no, ask, I, you, let me I ask get you a question. It. I get it. Do you think that the f- – I want to fight for this film as I said in the beginning because it is in the spot that it is in my mind or heart. Um, so, I'm going to find a way to argue on the side that I want to be on. That's fair. Uh, they, but go ahead, ask away. I, my question is: Do you think that the film will, uh, thinks highly of Rita Wilson's character? Because I think that ultimately determines whether the film wants you rooting for Steve Martin. 
because if the movie does not think highly of Rita Wilson's character, then I think you can make a compelling case that Steve Martin is not at any point seen as the perspective character or seen as an asshole throughout. If you think that the movie... uh, Yeah, but that's not like a black and white triumph, right? Because she's like, lacks all self-confidence, is by all accounts fairly pathetic, right? And so it might be a victory for her that it happened in this unfortunate way on the bathroom floor, but I don't know that it's a victory for the audience. But so you don't think that Rita Wilson's character is supposed like I think she's supposed to be the moral center of the movie. I don't know that the movie originally was supposed to have a clear moral well, originally, center. Originally, but I'm saying in this, like Nora Ephronberg. I, I mean, only by default. I mean, what else do you have? I'm just saying, like, if the movie is including her with just as ridiculous, but in a different way, a different mix of the nuts, so to speak, then I think that while I does it doesn't make the movie necessarily better, I think you can make a compelling case that everyone's terrible in a different way. If if you think that she is supposed to be like somewhat of a sane person or at least a good person trying to do the right thing and isn't that nutty, then I think that because i think the idea is that that steve martin renounces some of his more nutty ways to to be with her and recognize that his kind of scams and attempts to keep this afloat is not worth just being honest and relating to people like i think that's the character growth that steve martin's supposed to go through which then based on that i think you're supposed to buy him as a relatable character that you're rooting for yeah enough so that he can land the moral center on the bed. Exactly. So I guess it depends you. how you feel. I mean, maybe that's the ultimate question is like, how do you feel the movie feels about Rita Wilson's character? Because if you feel like it's think she's just generally good, the movie has a moral problem. If you think that she's supposed to be portrayed as a different version of nuttiness, so to speak, then I think that you make a compelling case, even if I think the movie is unsuccessful at it. Yeah, I, I don't Peter, know. What do you I think? Mean, she, yeah, uh, I think we should move on to other items. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, but the uh, uh, <laughs> I don't want to discuss the movie with you guys. Yeah, that's not why we're yeah, here. This is, this is the only bailout I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull. But I'm, uh, do we go to final thoughts? I was I getting close. Yeah, what is happening, Bill? I owned this on VHS because I was super committed. <laughs> for a while to watch all the Steve Martin movies. Like, this is, like, in 1999, 2000, before, like, the Bringing Down the House years when I worked at the VHS store. And I owned this, and I just never got around to it. Um, So I was kind of, like, excited to see the Steve Martin movie from the 90s. And I also feel like um, it it was going to be unfairly judged because it's coming after that string of hits. Uh, that I mentioned, so it's like were people comparing this to Dirty Rotten Scoundrels and Parenthood and going, oh, this isn't as good, and so they were giving it a negative review, but not comparing it against other 90s movies or Steve Martin's now au revoir that we've seen uh, to date in 2020, and I think, no, I think it was judged fairly. 
So I do think I gave this a chance. I was not expecting to dislike this. But there was a point where I felt like, when am I going to get to know the characters and and care about the plot and, and things are going to get a little more serious? And I checked the time and it was 45 minutes in. And I was like, oh, nothing's happening that's that interesting. Like a lot's happening. It's just an escalation. No character growth. Yeah, just zany, 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 zany. Yeah. Like, I, I'm not sure any of the characters truly develop over the course of the film, except for the landlord, because he goes from, like, being alive to dead. Yeah, it's a lot of incident and plot, but, like, mm-hmm. the characterization is so uh, shallow that it just feels like, again, maybe that's, maybe I'm asking too much from French farce, which is that what it's about, but in that case, I think the comedy needs to be better, and that's not there either. Yeah, my problem with the movie, and I guess it sort of points us towards the finale, my problem with the movie is that it feels very non-committal. And I think it all comes back to Steve Martin's character. Um, Rita Wilson feels dialed in for this type of movie. Yeah. Like, um, Juliette Lewis, I feel like, is actually pretty... I'm trying to think of a nicer way than to say one note. Juliette Lewis is actually, like, consistent... Um, there's not a whole lot of character development, but she's consistent, no. right? And she hits those like funny little like I'm nuts moments very well. Um, you know, Gary Shandling, Robert Klein, Robert Rob Reiner, I think has the biggest role of all those guys. Um, they they all they all like come in and pep up the movie for a few for a few moments before disappearing. Like I think it all comes back to Steve Martin, um, and that's that Steve Martin's like. You could say he's miscast in this movie, but I don't think that's right. I think that's taking I think that's taking um culpability away from him and culpability away from Nora Ephron. The the character is lost in this muddle, and writing a character who's feeling lost and torn in all directions mm-hmm. is very tough. Steve Martin is one of our comic performers who's incredibly skilled at even in very slight movies making us feel bad for him even in moments where like what he's mad about is fucking uh that hot dogs come in eight packs and buns come in six packs or whatever right <laughs> yeah like that he's a sort of guy who can pull those performances off and he's torn in all directions in this movie and it, the movie refuses to make choices about um whether or not he's uh you know an irredeemable asshole is refusing to make choices about whether or not um, he's just a sweet guy trying to keep his business afloat, which honestly, like having Steve Martin play a sort of father of the bride character for most of this movie and be like the ballast, the comfort, the comfort, the comfort, and then the third act for him to go crazy with everyone else and you to realize like he's got all the, he's got problems. Like the people. Yeah, that's a pretty standard story structure that the movie could have tapped into. Like, like he's got problems too, and then you know the 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 the, the finale of the movie is uh, because he finally you know stopped um, denying himself. He he uh, he got to be truly happy, but the movie refuses to commit to kind of anything. And Steve Martin is yeah. this big like uh, glyph, this big icon of that. Um, despite the fact that I I, I think it's it's kind of uh, shared. 
I, I think it's uh, most the, the 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 blame falls on uh, Nora Fran Delia Fran her sister who co wrote some of her movies movies with her and um, yeah and also I and, guess uh, I mean if we're we're indicting Nora them Fran. probably their parents too right because yeah they them. yeah <laughs> and and like I absolutely hate like putting this shit on directors because you don't know how badly producer meddling is but like here's the thing when a performer does something amazing in a movie. And let's say the director actually thought it was a shitty idea, but the performer just kept doing it. <laughs> uh, the director still gets credit for that thing working. Yeah. The thing about being a director is you have to take credit for uh, performances not working and perform, and you get to take credit for performances working. It's a weird thing. It's just a bad pro- byproduct of auteur theory. Nora Ephron kind of has to take a, you know, a punch on the chin for this one or, you know, let me say say that better. Like she has to kind of take a, she kind of has to take the, the check, the, uh, check by her name. Yeah. She has to take that check by her name and that's fine because she came back and gave us You've Got Mail, which is an exceedingly charming Christmas movie a few years later. Like she didn't even, she wasn't even knocked down that long. So that's kind of my, <laughs> my thesis on the closure of the movie. I don't know if we have more to say there though. No, I'll just do a very quick final thought. But like as you're, you know, you can't like you can't just have a movie that's incident with nothing connecting the characters to their life before the movie. Right. Like you, I, I don't need forever on characterization, but characterization is important, especially in a farce and a comedy where you need to understand why characters are doing what they're doing to find it funny. Like. Part of why Frasier works so well, which is kind of our, our kind of modern television farce that probably has a lot of common reference points, is that like we understand every character in that fucking show's motivation so goddamn well that like when they get like when they get into these ridiculously escalated situations like it makes sense why Niles would get a bird and then have to hide in the kitchen because he doesn't want to go tell his guest that he has a bird stuck on him because he's trying, you know, he's post divorce and then Frazier, why trying to, you know, be the brother who's, you know, comforting his, 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 uh, other brother is going through these, like you understand everything that goes on. And that's why that is such like, Frasier is a really fantastic example of farce as a, as a genre because the only way that works is to understand where everyone's coming from at all times. So the, the escalating situations are hilarious. They're ridiculous. But they still are like measured in an anchor to who these people are. Because if not, you can just have people do ridiculous shit all the time and it doesn't matter to anything. And unfortunately, I think that's what you have in this movie. Like, and I think, you know, instead of getting into too much long-windedness or detail on it, like, I don't believe for a second that Steve Martin's character, why he had any interest whatsoever in opening uh, Suicide Hotline. Like, there's there's nothing in there that ties him to why this is important to him, why he wants it as a job. Like, it's just a thing that he does. He's bad at it. He doesn't seem that interested in it. Like, he definitely... You know, every joke at at him helping people is at the expense of him helping people. So, like, you get this, like, this guy wants to – sure, like, this this guy is ineffectual at this and he shouldn't do this. But, like, you need something to tie him to why he thinks he's good at it or why he wants to do it. 
in the first place and just a general, well, he's a nut like the rest of them is a really bad characterization that ties you to nothing. <laughs> and so that's – I mean that's what this movie does. It 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 doesn't tie you to anyone. It doesn't – you don't know the characters besides their actions in the little like 48 hours we see or 24 hours that we see. And so how can you how can you possibly recognize like, well, I can, yeah, sure, that character's going to insane lengths, but I know a, a modicum of who he is as a person, so I understand why he would be doing that stuff. Um, instead, it's it's just like untethered craziness and that how could you possibly – find then their escalating situations hilarious because why wouldn't these people that have no tether to reality do those things like who cares um so with that bill why don't you take us home yeah take us home bill i i, I first want to say i'm actually amazed at the depth we got to on this <laughs> like we unpacked way more than i thought we could from this um well said, Aaron. I, you know, you guys made really strong points um, about why this may not be the best Christmas movie out there. Um, I guess my final thought would be you're both wrong. Um, I don't even know why you have a podcast, um, but you really flubbed this one. <laughs> um, but it's been fun talking about, you know, why you were so wrong. Um, yeah, this is uh, yeah. this has been really this has been really fun. This is a movie that genuinely made me made me mad, but I was excited as hell to like <laughs> get on. Peter, you've known this was one of my movies for a long I time, tried, right? I mean, I've I always tried. I tried. Uh, I tried. I think that's why we're doing it on the show, Bill. To be honest, oh yeah, I, he asked me for a bad Christmas movie, and I suggested. I, but I, yeah, and so it's not as if I don't know its reputation. We had um, three that we felt very strongly about that we were like, we absolutely have to do these three, and then we were like, huh, what what could tie the month together? And then the idea of this like black comedy with this insane cast this <laughs> insanely good cast that seems to misstep every step it makes um and yet bill loves it like those is a fucking it's a fucking no-brainer well well that's the funny part of how bad the podcast is <laughs> i suggested the worst of the worst christmas movies you guys had forgotten it's just well, awful. Yeah, didn't even, didn't even register for us. But we were excited to do it. And again, it is a movie that at one point I picked up for five bucks on VHS with the intent um, with the intent to watch it. So, I mean, I'm and glad everyone I who hears it. your description is going to laugh so hard that they're going to go watch it because it's funny when you describe it. Uh, yeah. And also, it counts for hashtag 52. So, very helpful to all Huge of us win. who are participating in that. That's the most positive thing I can say. About yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Again, we were talking about checking a box. That's the definition yeah. of checking a box. But oh, yeah, I, I, I have found like I'm glad I'm I'm glad we did it just because like I um you've been there, done that now. Well, no, that I like I I think this this month has already been somewhat interesting. Is that like I. Because we can sit here and say, like, here's why this movie doesn't work as a farce. Here doesn't work as, like, a a comedy or a heartwarming story or drama from our perspective. But at the end of the day, one of the, the best parts about this season, Bill, is that all of that shit that Peter and I said doesn't match to, yeah, but I like it and it makes me feel Christmassy. Yes. During the Christmas season. So, like, 
that's always going to win. I, I can't argue with that. I wouldn't want to argue with that. I wouldn't want to take mixed nuts away from you anymore than I would want to take any movie that like uh, gives people the warm feelings this time of year away from them. Uh, and then, also for other movies that have nothing to do with this time of year. Like, um, but I like I get it like this. If this is a movie that 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 tickles your Christmas cockles, it's that's what the season is for. There's there's not that many great Christmas movies, but there's a lot that make us feel uh, uh, Christmassy. Let's just say cockles again. Warm your cockles. You can tickle your cockles. I'm not sure where your cockles are, but they are susceptible to heat and tickling. Tickling. <laughs> no one ever says awesome. chill your cockles. Uh, Bill, Man, I mean, I'm, it's going to require you this- me to it, uh, editing this episode is going to require me to have uh, several bumps of cocaine, uh, some combat PTSD, some experimental combat drugs from Brazil, um, <laughs> a combat knife for some reason jammed into the table. The shortest episode we've done in a year. <laughs> yeah, if all you're hearing is probably because Peter dogs. decided to like throw in the towel. Well, yeah, three yeah, quarters I'm, I'm about through. to edit a three and a half hour episode on Santa Paws or whatever. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> just the two of us. <laughs> I just decided. I just decided that 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 we needed to, we needed to bail out. Somebody needed to pull the ripcord. Uh, what, what do you think, Peter? I've had enough. We're still at two fifteen right now. Okay, well, well let's end yeah. it. Bill, as always, do you have anything to promote? <laughs> yeah. Um, mixed yeah, nuts. This, this little North front film that I don't think people have seen. Mixed nuts. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, uh, yeah, okay, yeah. Watch Mixed Nuts. Um, I guess. Uh, yeah, next week we have, as, as alluded to, <laughs> A uh, three-hour and fifteen-minute raw episode that will be cut down to probably an hour twenty, buck twenty. Uh, in uh, the search for Santa Paws, the tenth entry in the uh, Air Buddies franchise, and the prequel to the popular Santa Buddies movie, we'll we'll get into all of it next week. Um, Is it really the tenth? It's the 10th entry. It's the uh, the eighth Holy entry shit. of Santa Buddies. This is a prequel to it. Um, and it is no longer about a dog uh, helping a kid whose dad exploded in a jet incident <laughs> learn to love basketball at the new school that he transferred to, but is instead about a uh, uh, a talking dog who helps an amnesiac uh, Santa and some orphan girls uh, have a toy store turn a profit of one penny. Wow. So sounds- so basically a direct line. I think that's always where the Airborne yeah. franchise was going. We talk about Speaking it- of a direct line, when are we going to do an episode on Max, the, the German Shepherd and the bad dogs <sighs> yeah, that haunt him? Yeah. I don't know why. I, I, t- I talked about how Max is the movie that's made me the most angry in the last couple of years. And Bill's like, well, I'm that's watching the reason it I watched it. Yeah. Do you get it, though? Do you get why, like, it's a... It's a movie. Yeah. Ab- it's a movie about dogs for people that hate dogs but love the. Military. There are bad dogs in it. Like they want you rooting to hurt a dog. They want like, you to rooting for killing dog. Also, Tom and Hayden Church pulls a gun and points it at a dog. <laughs> <laughs> what? Wait, hold on, hold on. I just remembered something. 
We we've covered this whole movie. We didn't talk about the fact that the movie was shot by Sven Nyquist, who shot Virgin Spring, Persona, Fanny, Fanny and Alexander. Yeah, it's kind of like how Orson Welles' last uh, performance was as Unicron in the Transformers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good night. Good night. <laughs> night all. Hey Santa, can't you Thank you so much for listening to We Love to Watch. If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand and you want to support the show. We truly, absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it, and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, We really do appreciate you. Uh, With kisses and smooches, Peter and Aaron. (laughs)